You are listening to the Treasuring Christ Church podcast. At TCC, we believe that church isn't just like a family, but it is a family. We hope you're encouraged by listening to God's word today, but we would love to see you on Sundays at 1030. For more information, check us out online at tccannarbor.com. I want to take you back uh, a little bit uh, to, to pre uh, me worshiping to Shane and Shane music to my sixth grade basketball team, all right? Um, and I searched high and low for this picture um, to find last night as I got home. Uh, this is uh, my sixth grade basketball team. I know you can tell uh, that uh, we were a killer team, um, and uh, you didn't you didn't want to mess with us. I think we won one game that year, but um, <clears throat> there was it was just a hard year. Chemistry, we we had some new guys, you know, and um, we just didn't. We had some injuries, um, you know. Um, I I I didn't I didn't have my best year, um, but nonetheless. Uh, this is my sixth grade basketball team. Some good memories. We were the Happy Hollow Hawks, um, and um, incredible graphic designer that we had for our jerseys. Um, and uh, I was convinced as I began my um, <clears throat> organized basketball career, which only lasted for two years, um, that uh, that I was going to be almost as good as Michael Jordan, but if I couldn't be as good as Michael Jordan, I was going to be my next favorite basketball player, and that was Allen Iverson. Um, I was convinced that I was going to carry our team uh, to our league championship, and uh, there was only one problem. I wasn't going to be able to do that unless I had this one thing. There was one thing that was absolutely essential for me, if I was going to play on the level of AI and help our team, that's Allen Iverson for the uninitiated, uh, if I was going to help our team win our league championship, and it was these bad boys right here. The Reebok Answer 2s were the, were the thing that I needed <laughs> in order to help my team win, all right? Uh, and I was absolutely convinced of this, and up until this point in my life, I, I got whatever shoes uh, my dad could get me, and uh, and we often had back and forth as to what shoes I wanted and why he wouldn't get me the shoes that I wanted. Um, and before these, uh, I, I started, the, before these, I wanted a pair of Nike shoes. And I, I mean, I ended up getting like the most ugly Nike shoes that you could possibly get. But the, the thing that was important is that it had that Nike swoosh on it. You know what I'm saying? That was like status. Uh, on my uh, on my fifth grade in my fifth grade class and so I was mowing yards by that time and so I mowed a few yards and I had enough money to buy my first pair of shoes like didn't matter what dad thought I was getting the Nikes no matter if he thought I was going to ruin them in two months which I did I was getting the Nikes all right well after I got the Nikes uh, and I realized that shoes really do make you play basketball better I was then convinced that these bad boys right here were the key uh, to success. And, and I wasn't going to be happy. I wasn't going to be content until I had them. Now, I learned that whatever placebo effect I thought basketball shoes had on my basketball game, uh, the reality is basketball shoes don't make you play better, right? Like just because you wear Allen Iverson shoes don't mean you can cross over like Allen Iverson crossed over, right? Uh, it doesn't mean that you could step back and hit a jumper uh, like Jordan could. Like those things didn't happen. They only happen uh, to those who practice, right? Like your shoes ultimately um, may be important to have good shoes so you don't roll your ankle, but they're ultimately not going to make you play basketball better. And the thing was, even though I had the shoes, even though I looked good, I mean like after a basketball game, I would clean them and make sure that they remained uh, in their truest condition. Uh, I had the matching uh, Allen Iverson socks that went with it. And if you wore different socks with the shoes, they didn't feel the same. Um, all of these things were essential, but the reality was I wasn't any more happy after my team lost consecutively every week uh, because I was wearing nice Allen Iverson shoes, right? And after the season, of course, in sixth grade, you know, your foot grows exponentially. And like uh, within six months, I couldn't even wear the basketball shoes. And so uh, the happiness that they promised didn't last long. Um, that was sixth grade. Life is a little different now. I've got on a pair of Brooks running shoes. Um, that I don't run in, but in case I do, I'm ready, right? <laughs> Just in case, uh, I'll be ready to go whenever that day comes. Um, but, uh, but life is a little different 
But the same, the same kind of thing uh, happens in my own heart. I think to myself, I won't be happy unless you fill in the blank. What is it for you if you had to answer this question? If I only had blank, then that would be enough. What would you put in the, in the blank? Marriage, money, a different job, better possessions. See, the thing is, toys change over the years, but the desire remains the same. And in fact, uh, I have good word that the sneaker market is just as hot as it was in 1998 uh, as it is uh, today, perhaps uh, even more so. Uh, I wish I would have kept my answer uh, to shoes. Maybe I could have gotten something from them after all. Um, you see, but, but today, today it's not sneakers for me. It's being in my mid-30s, the desire to have security, stability, uh, while knowing that my future is relatively financially stable, right? Like those are the things that maybe you start to uh, creep in and think, if I just have this, it'll be enough. Maybe it's, maybe it's you wish you were as good at your job as someone else, or your kids were as well-behaved as someone else, or you wish you had uh, that you were a better father, or a better husband, or a better wife, or a better mother. Maybe you think, I just wish I could get away and do the things that they do. Then I would really have rest and, and feel complete. As a pastor, the internal workings of my heart that aren't uh, exempt from sin are the thoughts of, I wish my church was bigger, or we looked better this way, or I was a better preacher, or I was a better leader. I just always thirsting and hungering to be a little better and to have a little more is kind of the, the ongoing rat race, it seems like, of human life and our experience in our culture and in our world. Our family, we, we love uh, also on a road trip singing along to Hamilton. And as I was singing this, uh, this road trip, we were singing Satisfied at the top of our lungs in the car. Uh, I think we often are more like Angelica Schuyler and Alexander Hamilton, never satisfied, never, never being satisfied, always wanting more. There's a million things that I haven't done uh, that, that we think to ourselves, always thirsting and hungering to do a little bit more, to be a little bit more, to have a little bit more. And the Tenth Commandment comes in and it speaks to the very heart of desiring more and more and more. The Tenth Commandment comes last, but breaking it is really underneath every other commandment. The bookends of the Tenth Commandments, you shall have no other God before me and you shall not covet anything that belongs to your neighbor, uh, really uh, go hand in hand. It's often in wanting more and wanting more than who God is and what he has for us that we break every other commandment. That we break the command both to love God as well as to love our neighbor. And in all of the other commandments, we've had to look at how they speak to the heart behind the issue. We've had to, to kind of do the same type of work that Jesus did in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, uh, if you lust after a woman or a man in your heart, you've committed adultery. You've heard it said, you shall not murder. And we're like, good, I haven't done that. But he said, I say to you, if you've been angry and hated your brother in your heart, then you've been guilty of breaking the sixth commandment. Well, the 10th commandment skips all of that and it goes right to the heart to begin with. It goes, it's the only command that deals directly with the internal desire of the heart that isn't first focused on the external act, but is first focused on the internal desire. Exodus 20 Verse 17 is uh, where we find ourselves today at the conclusion uh, of the Ten Commandments. And it says this, it says, Do not cover, covet your neighbor's house. Do not covet your neighbor's wife, his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And as we hear these words, um, on one hand, uh, we look at these and we think, well, I can relate on one hand with the house and perhaps my neighbor's wife or husband, their family. Um, <clears throat> obviously, male, female servants uh, dynamic kind of points us to work a little bit. Um, you know, an ox, ox is if you have a big SUV, a donkey is if you have a smaller car. Um, but, but then it kind of states, that's, that's, I'm not sure that's the exact uh, uh, parallel <laughs> translation today. But, um, but then it states anything that belongs to your neighbor. It, it really speaks to the heart of desiring what other have or desiring to put yourself in the place of other people. Um, and, and it does so in a comprehensive way, covering 
uh, a number of different things. And we saw last week that the ninth commandment is the first commandment that explicitly talks about your neighbor. Uh, when it says that we're not to bear false witness against our neighbor, all the other commandments obviously concern our neighbor, um, meaning uh, not just the person who lives closest to us, but uh, as Jesus would later show us in the Gospels, our neighbor refers to, to everyone. Um, and, and so as we think about what he's saying here, it really is a comprehensive commandment. And as we've done throughout this series, uh, various catechisms help get at uh, this question. And the Westminster Catechism this week I found particularly helpful it asks two questions. One, what are the duties required in the Tenth Commandment? And secondly, what are the sins forbidden in the Tenth Commandment? Uh, the, first, the first thing it says is this. The duties required in the Tenth Commandment are such, or excuse me, are such a full contentment with our own condition and a charitable frame of the whole soul towards our neighbor as that all of our inward motion and affections touching him tend unto and further all that is good, which is his. It gets a little flowery there at the end. Um, and so, um, but, but the statement is such a full contentment with our own condition and a charitable frame towards our neighbor would lead us to have thoughts and feelings towards them that are for their good rather than their ill or wishing ourselves in their place. But that we truly uh, have contentment and love for our neighbor, charitable frame of the whole soul towards our neighbor, that we, we have affections and thoughts towards them that are for their good. Well, on the flip side, as we look at what it requires of it, we see what it forbids. And the sins forbidden in the 10th commandment are discontent with our own estate, envying, grieving at the good of our neighbor, together with all the inordinate motions and affections to anything that is his. The, the, the very desiring uh, of, uh, of the things that our neighbor owns, envying after them, which is a resentful recognition that what they have you wish you had. When you see good uh, that they have or that they've experienced, rather than rejoicing in that good, you grieve. Uh, you wish that it wasn't true of them, but that it was true of you. The Westminster Catechism helps us see the two primary issues that the Tenth Commandment deals with that I want us to look at. The first is our own contentment. The first is our own contentment. Similar to me in my sixth grade basketball days, uh, we are prone to think that we need uh, something uh, that, that perhaps we've seen others have or that is out there in order to satisfy us, to, to make us content, that without it, we won't be happy. And often as we think about contentment, it relates to material possessions. It relates to, uh, to money and to what we can gain by money. And the scriptures speak to this time and time again. It says in Hebrews 13, 5, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. See how those two things are connected. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. We'll come back to that point in, in just a minute. It's interesting, isn't it, that... And this command where we're told to be content with what we have, rather than assuring us of the quality of the content we own or, or telling us that better possessions aren't always what make us happy, that the grounding that it gives for why we shouldn't seek the love of money but be content with what we have is that we are promised the presence of God. I will never leave you or forsake you, he says. Therefore, you can be content in what you have and not strive after the love of money. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 11, Paul talks about how godliness um, is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. Godliness is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, so we can't take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and snare and many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Notice it doesn't, it doesn't say that acquiring lots of money is the problem. It says that the love of money and that those who seek after it have in the end plunged themselves into ruin and destruction and wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. See, I learned a long time ago that you don't have to have money to be controlled by the love of money. 
that your heart can thirst and hunger for more and for more even when you don't have any. And your discontentment isn't found because you have a ton uh, and you're just unhappy with it, but it's because you're longing for more and you're unhappy with where you find yourself. What Paul says here doesn't just speak to those who have a lot. It speaks to those who have nothing, and it speaks to the very issue of the heart. What do you desire? What are you longing for? And Paul says in response to turning away from the love of money and the longing for it, instead we are to flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness, just like we saw in Hebrews 13, 5, that the, the, the thing that we need to, to find contentment isn't just convincing ourselves that what we've got is all that we need, but instead the key to contentment is believing that God is really what we need. Amen. The key to contentment is believing that God is what we need, and if we have him, then we have enough. Time and time again, the scriptures point us uh, to this truth that that contentment is not found, that our identity, our worth, as Keith and Kristen Getty have put in a song, our worth is not in what we own. Our possessions aren't where our satisfaction and our fulfillment come from. But our satisfaction and our fulfillment, our contentment is found in belonging to God and knowing that we are His. And that if we have Him and what He wants for us, then we truly have enough. And you think to yourself, I know that. And yet, how often does our heart get gripped by and wrapped up in something? And maybe it's just temporarily. Maybe it's just a season. Maybe you've been in that season where you're longing for some relationship or, or you're longing for some new adventure. You're longing for some experience or you want some resolution to some issue. Or, or maybe it's the newest thing that's relevant to your field or to your interest and you just got to have it. And you spend all your time thinking about that. Maybe it's, I, I, wanna, I, I want this particular house, or I want this car, or I, I need this thing. I'm tired of not having the things that I want. You, sometimes you get to that point where you're just like, man, I'm tired of not having what I want. I've been in that place as, uh, as a parent before where I thought, man, I want to do more for my kids. And uh, I saw something a friend had, and I think, man, I'm such a loser. I don't have anything for my kids. So I went to Target, and I splurged like $200 on a bunch of stuff for my kids and then I got it all out and my kids were like, this is lame. You know, and you're like, you think if I just get more then everybody's going to be happy. Listen to me, kids, more toys don't make you more happy. Listen, adults, more toys don't make you more happy, right? But we can get caught up in that. We can think that more is better and more is what we need. Jeremiah Burroughs has written a book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. I do have to admit it gets a little wordy, but uh, he says that contentment is the sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit. Here's the main point. Contentment freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Contentment submits to and delights in the fact that God is good and knows what's best and is gracious to give us everything we need in his time and in his way. If I was him, that's how I would say it. That's what contentment is. It doesn't squash ambition. We'll come back to that in a minute. It doesn't stifle lament over suffering or suggest that we could never seek to change our circumstances. Hear me clearly. I'm not telling you that you just have to accept a, a fatalistic determination that whatever is, it is, and you just have to accept it. I'm not here promoting Buddhist thought that you need to get rid of all desire, that desire is bad. None of those things are true. What, what Scripture points us to time and time again is that our desire needs to be, needs to be directed to its truest home, to God himself, to trusting in him in every circumstance. The book of Philippians chapter 4 verses 10 through 13 speak to this and uh, perhaps Tim Tebow more than any other uh, athlete has reminded us that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us, right? You might remember uh, the eye patch and, uh, and it's true as we think about what we are facing, anything we face, we, we have confidence that God is with us and will strengthen us to honor him in anything that we do. It doesn't mean that you'll score a touchdown. It doesn't mean that you'll get what you want. It doesn't mean that the game will happen the way you want. It doesn't mean your life will happen the way that you want. But listen to what Paul said in Philippians 4. 
He said, I rejoice in the Lord greatly, uh, and I'm renewed for your care for me, talking to the Philippian believers, your concern for me, uh, but have lacked the opportunity to show it. I don't say this out of need. I've learned to be content in whatever circumstance I find myself. I know both how to make do with little, and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content, whether being well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. I am able to do all things through him, through Christ, who strengthens me. The secret of contentment is being found in Christ and trusting in him, being confident that he is able to work in and through us to accomplish his will, whatever it may be. Trusting in the Lord is the very heart of contentment. And in many ways, coveting even though it deals with wanting other people's stuff, it's first a vertical problem with God before it's a horizontal problem with other people. We know this because Colossians 3, 5, as Paul unpacks a list of sins there in Colossians 3, uh, he talks about putting to death those things which are of your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, greed, which is idolatry. He points to greed. He points to the lack of contentment, to, uh, to longing for what other people have as being idolatry, of placing ourselves at the center of our universe rather than the one true and living God. Do you know that when you covet, you believe and live as if God isn't preeminent and most important? When we covet what other people have, think about it this way. We are believing that someone else's house is preeminent. We are believing that somebody else's family circumstance or situation is preeminent. We, we believe even that uh, money is preeminent. Maybe it's a car or a vacation or something that you can acquire with it. You think that, that maybe it's a, a phone that's preeminent for a moment. You think this is what's most important. I have to have this. At its core, covetousness reveals our discontentment in God. It reveals that we don't trust that God is enough. We don't trust that God knows what's best for us. Kevin DeYoung, has, in his book, The Ten Commandments, speaking on this, he says, contentment means wanting what God wants for us rather than what we want for ourselves. And isn't that the rub? Isn't that the struggle? To believe that God knows what's best and he'll give us what's best in his timing and his way rather than, um, rather than trusting ourselves and our timing and our way. Jeremiah 17 7 through 8 says, Blessed is the one, the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. Listen to the way it describes those who trust in the Lord. They're like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream that does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green, and it is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. The circumstances around you change, but the source of your contentment remains the same. That those who trust in the Lord are secure. Speaking uh, on contentment uh, in an article, Melissa Kruger, a writer and author, says, Contentment is not the fruit of perfect circumstances or a calm constitution. It's the result of trusting in the Lord. You say, how do I get contentment? How do I get to that place where I have, uh, as Jeremiah Burroughs talked about, that, uh, that disposition, that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit, which freely submits to and delights in God? How do I get to that place? It begins not by taking stock and inventory of all that you have and coming to the conclusion that, you know, I really have more than that. I've got a good amount. Uh, it comes by trusting the Lord, recognizing him as the giver of every good gift, giving thanks for what he's given you, seeing his hand and all that you have, trusting him for what you desire and don't have, trusting him to help you to rejoice in others when they have the things that maybe you want. Contentment is found in trusting the Lord. Now, I like to think I'm a realist, and so I want to be honest. Knowing and following Christ won't pay your bills, right? Knowing and paying Christ though will determine if you live in dependence on him as you seek work or do your work. Failing to trust Christ will lead you to working with anxious toil as you go about seeking and doing your work. Knowing and following Christ won't ensure that you never lose your job or face financial need. 
But knowing and following Christ, trusting in the Lord will make a difference in how you live in those moments and whether or not you will live with humility and trust in those moments that you face need or that you will respond with bitterness and anger in those moments. Trusting the Lord makes a difference in how we respond to those circumstances. Knowing and following Christ won't ensure that you get everything you want or you wish. Amen? But knowing Christ will determine if you can rejoice in what God has given you and enjoy those things as good gifts or whether you pass through this life always grumbling. Never having enough. Never able to fully appreciate who God is and what he's given you. So the 10th commandment deals with our own contentment and and reminds us that our contentment is not found in our circumstances. Our contentment is not found in convincing ourselves that we have all that we need, but it's found in knowing that God is really what we need. And if we have him and what he has determined to give us, then we have enough. But I said earlier, one thing that I I do want to speak to is I I think about uh, who, who I'm speaking to today and I think about the world in which we find ourselves when I think about our contentment, I do want you to hear, I don't think that, that the 10th commandment is abolishing our desires or ambition. It's not, it's not saying that you should just accept whatever you have and never desire to change or never desire to succeed in some area. In fact, if anything, I think we need to recover a sense of godly ambition, a desire to, to do and to achieve and to work, not for ourselves, but for God. You see, godly ambition is rightly ordering your desires with glorifying God at the center of your life. It's rightly ordering your desires with glorifying God being the very center of all that you do and everything else permeating out from it. See, the Bible continually condemns selfish ambition. It reminds us that ambition bent towards us is the problem, not ambition bent towards God and his purposes. Ambition to make our name great or, um, uh, or, or make something of ourselves may help us climb the ladder at work, so to speak. But it's a dead end when it comes to God. Because the ambition that God delights in is ambition spent for him, ambition for his glory. Ambition to use our gifts and passions uh, for Christ and his church. Ambition to do our work wholeheartedly and humbly so that God is honored and exalted in how we live and how we work and how we interact with others. Ambition to be salt and light in all that we do. This is the kind of ambition that God delights in. This is the kind of ambition that God desires for us. So you have to ask yourself when you think about your desires, what's driving you to do what you do? What's the motivating force behind your work? What's the motivating force behind what you're pursuing in your life and is God at the center of it? Or is he on the periphery? C.S. Lewis, talking about selfishness and our own desires, um, kind of contrasting when we have our desires bent towards ourselves, it's not that they're too strong, but rather it's that they're too weak. He says, our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because they cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. Our problem is we are far too easily pleased, Lewis said. And later, speaking about ambition, ultimately centered on Christ and his glory, Lewis said, look for yourself, look out for you, ambition bent on you, and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, he said. Look for Christ, and when you look for Christ, you will find him and everything else thrown in with him. When we seek Him, when our ambition is centered around Him, we not only get Him, but we get everything else He desires for us thrown in. So the Tenth Commandment forces us to face our own contentment. Are you really content in who God is? Trusting that He knows what's best and has given you what He desires. Trusting him even as you seek to perhaps change your circumstance or pursue some goal. That you're not, you're not fooled into thinking that the real success and the real happiness, the real satisfaction is on the other side of achieving. But that the real source of contentment, the real source of happiness 
It's not found on the other side of it. It's found from within when we trust the Lord. Trust the Lord with what we have and trust the Lord with the work that we're setting out to do. See, our problem is sometimes we begin by trusting the Lord, but somewhere along the way, we get distracted. We get distracted and focused on something else. And our hearts are led astray. And like Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, that there are many who, who set out, and, and perhaps they set out in a good way, but then their desires change. And whether it's longing for, for money or, or longing for some, something that somebody else has, we wander from the faith and we pierce ourselves with many griefs when our desires are set on ourselves rather than set on Christ and his glory. So we see the 10th commandment addresses our own contentment. And man, what a challenge that is. What a good reminder that is. Are you content in Christ? Are you content in what he's given you? And foundational to being content in Christ is realizing that he's truly met your every need. And knowing that he's met your every need isn't first and foremost believing that he's given you the right living conditions. But knowing that he's met your every need is that you've first seen your need for him, our sin that separates us from him, and you've trusted in his provision for you. And the sacrifice of his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. It's when we receive him and him alone that we have everything. That our eternity is secure. That our future is, our present is changed because he is with us. That our past is forgiven. That God is working now to restore us and renew us into his image, into who he desires us to be. And even as we wander through this life and we face the myriad of challenges that come our way, we can be confident like Hebrews 13.5 says that he's with us. Therefore, we can be content. Do you have that kind of contentment? In Christ. But secondly, the 10th commandment forces us to think about our neighbor's good. I pointed this out at the beginning that the 10th commandment three times mentions our neighbor. See, the language of our neighbor puts, uh, the language of the 10th commandment puts our neighbor at the forefront of our minds. Uh, we look, uh, it, it draws our mind to the things that our neighbor, uh, that belongs to him, the relationships that belong to him or to her, to the things that they have. And when we think about what our neighbor has, our response must not be jealousy and envy. Must not be desiring to put ourselves in their place, having what they have. Instead, we ought to be able to rejoice in what's good. We ought to have, as it says, a charitable frame of mind of our whole soul towards our neighbor. We ought not wish their good away or wish ourselves in their place. The tenth commandment tells us to think about our neighbor not wishing their good away or wishing ourselves in their place. Now, I've said this before in, uh, in conversation with many of you. I've heard you say it, so I know you know it. Um, <clears throat> but it's good for me to remind you of it, of this truth when it comes to seeking our neighbor's good and, and fulfilling the tenth commandment. Comparison only invites discontentment and envy in your life. I, I wish that I had like a button that I could push to remind myself of that. I, I wish that was the warning on, at the top of your Instagram app uh, when you opened it up. I, I wish that I put it, uh, you know, on, on my rearview mirror. Actually, my car only has one rearview mirror. Uh, but on the right side... Um, I wish where it says objects may appear closer than they are. I wish I could be reminded as I go about my day looking about at other people and the things that they're doing and the things that they have. That comparison only invites discontentment and envy. You see, while, while covetousness is a vertical problem, it also is a horizontal problem. And that horizontal problem begins when we look at what others have and put ourselves in their place. It stems from our inability to rejoice in their good. And when we covet, we not only fail to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, believing that he's the good provider of all that we have and that he's enough, but we also fail to love our neighbor as ourself. 
You see, the, the way, uh, I love the way Kevin DeYoung spoke at this point. He said, there's not necessarily anything wrong with noticing what other people have. I mean, that's just part of life. Um, like, you just see what other people have, right? If you uh, are, are paying attention, you notice other people have things. Sometimes things that you don't have. Sometimes things that you wish you had. But the problem that most of us have is we don't stop and notice what others have so that we can give thanks to God for their blessings. Instead, we notice what they have and then we stop being thankful for all that God has given us. It's like we hit a roadblock. We notice what others have and rather than saying, thank God that you've provided for their needs, that you've given them what they need. Instead, we stop thanking God for what we have and we start grumbling about what we don't have. The Bible has a lot to say about envy, and I kind of listed a number of verses and the various ways they speak on envy, and rather than reading all of them, here's just a summary of some of the things that the scriptures say about envy. Envy being resentful awareness of another's advantage joined with the desire to possess that advantage. Seeing what they have and having that sense of resentment that we wish they didn't have it, and instead we wish we had it. Nothing wrong with saying, man, that's a sweet grill, and I wish I could get that grill. And I'm going to go work and save up and try to get a grill. That's, that's great, right? I mean, how many of us have thought to ourselves, man, that's pretty sweet. I think I'm going to get that. It's possible to look at what others have, think it's nice, rejoice in it, and then wish and pursue getting it yourself. But there's something that goes on in our heart. When rather than being able to rejoice in it, we kind of smile. We say, that's so great that you got that. And instead we're like stupid i wish they didn't have it they don't work as hard as i do they've got all you you know what else they got look what i don't have like that's the internal conversation that's going on with envy and covetousness and the scriptures say envy destroys us it actually eats away at us and and Job speaks about that, how, how he wasn't envious of others as he's examining the sin that he must have done in his mind as he experiences all these sufferings. He's, he's thinking, God, I haven't been envious of other people's things. He's, elsewhere, Psalm 37 says that we, we shouldn't envy those who do wrong. Psalm 73, uh, we'll, we'll come back to that in a minute, talks about looking at those who, who aren't walking with God and seeing them prosper. And despairing over it. Why do the wicked prosper? Why do those who not follow God, everything goes well for them? Why do the people who, who, do, uh, who seemingly cut corners and uh, are, uh, aren't full of integrity, why, do, why does their stuff always go well? Why do they have the nicest houses and the biggest cars? And it says that we're not to envy the prosperity of those who don't walk with God. Envy can steal our peace. Envy, Proverbs 27 says, is like a powerful envy. Ecclesiastes 4 say, when you're, motivated by envy, when you're motivated by envy, you're foolish. In Acts 7, we see how envy can cause us to act rashly. Like spending $200 at Target thinking you're going to make your kids happy only to find out that they're not happy with the $200 that you spent on them. And then you're without $200, which also means you don't have money to do other things that you want in life. Did I mention I did that? <laughs> Envy characterizes sinful people. Romans 1 lists all these ways in which we rebel against God. And you know what one of the ways is? Right smack dab in the middle of, uh, of unrighteousness and ungodliness. All these things where you're like, whoa, I mean, like, I'm not that bad. It lists envy. Right there in the middle of it is characteristic of our rebellion against God. Galatians says we shouldn't envy and be filled with selfish ambition towards others in the body of Christ. In fact, Titus 3 says envy is what defined us before Christ. It has no place in the Christian life. James 3 says we're not to to harbor envy. And when we do, it leads us to quarrel. It leads us to fighting. It leads to conflict. And 1 Peter says that we ought to get rid of every form of envy in our hearts and instead replace it with the pure desire for God's word. Envy, one author said, is the antithesis of loving our enemies. Since the envious person will hate even if a friend, even a friend, if that friend is fortunate. Envy keeps us even from loving our neighbors. Somebody uh, said, I can't remember who said it this way, but in Romans 12, it says that we're to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. The problem is that we weep with those who, who weep, but we weep when others rejoice. That's the heart of envy. 
So I want you to think about yourself as you think about the Tenth Commandment. How do you respond when others succeed? Can you rejoice in your, in your friend's success? When you see others enjoy some good thing, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Do you love your neighbor by putting to death envy in your own heart? Do you love your neighbor by truly being able to rejoice in what good things they have and what good things they experience? And as I mentioned earlier, it's possible to see what others have and then think to yourself, I want to order my steps so that I can have that. The difference is that you trust God uh, on the one hand, as opposed to being embittered uh, and grumbling in your heart over what you don't have and, and thinking of all the reasons that they shouldn't have what they, what they have. There, there's a, a difference when it comes uh, to our heart's response to what others have, and it comes down to whether or not we can rejoice with them, whether or not we can trust God with what not only we do have as well as we don't have. Whether our desires for more are marked by believing that happiness is found on the other side of getting those things, or if our happiness is found in having God and trusting him, even as we pursue this thing, this job, this house, this, this experience, that even if we get it, we know that it will be a good gift, but it won't be the very heart of the giver itself. That takes us to God, not to the gift itself. And that's what James chapter 3, listen to James 3, uh, how it speaks to this. It says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his work uh, in, the, in his meekness of wisdom. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not boast and be false to the truth. That's not from God. That's not from above. In fact, it says it's earthly. It's unspiritual. It's demonic. These things aren't reflective of the heart of God. Instead, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, the very heart of covetousness, there will be disorder and evil of every vile practice. But notice the contrast. The wisdom of God is pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. The ability to rejoice with others when things go well, to weep with others when things don't go well, to not put ourselves in their spot and to not uh, uh, be ungrateful for what God has given us. And goes on to say, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on yourself, to spend it on your own passions. And what does God say to the messed up, envious hearts that we bring to him every day? doesn't say get your act together, stop it, do better. He says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be torn, turned to mourning and joy. This is repentance. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. You see, to truly rejoice in our neighbor's good and to put uh, envy to death in our hearts requires us to turn away from ourselves. The solution isn't in us. The solution is looking outside of us and humbling ourselves before God, submitting to him, drawing near to him, and confessing our sin to him, and then resting in his forgiveness and his grace. We fight covetousness by first turning to God. And experiencing the freedom of his forgiveness and grace. That's good news. I want to close with these three thoughts to help us fight covetousness. I, I, I've said in the other ones, you may have thought when we started out that you were in the clear and that you weren't guilty. I think when it comes to covetousness, we, we all kind of are uh, staring down at our Bibles and, and thinking about the presence of covetousness in our own hearts. Uh, maybe sometimes even unaware of how much that's controlling us. <clears throat> I want to encourage us in these three ways to respond to and fight covetousness because I believe it, it's something that continually crops up in our hearts and our minds that we have to put to death. And the first, the first practice is worship. If covetousness is first a vertical problem, then our solution to it must also be vertical. 
So we fight covetousness by taking our focus off ourselves and placing it on God. And what better way do we do that than in worship? In worship, we remember who God is. We declare who he is. In worship, we profess our need for God and we confess our trust in him. I don't have time to read Psalm 73 all the way through, but you should read it. Psalm 73, 1 through 15 describes probably an experience that you've had in your life. I know it describes it for me. When I look at other people who succeed and I don't see them walking with God, I don't see them trusting God, but they're succeeding, they're getting more, they're doing better. And then I look at my lot and I look at my life and I think, why am I here? Why do I have what I have? The answer was a mystery to the psalmist. He says, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to be a wearisome task, verse 16 and 17 of Psalm 73, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Then I desired God more than everything else. My problem wasn't desiring, my, my, the problem of desiring what they had was only fixed by desiring God more than any of those things. The solution to envy came when the psalmist entered God's presence, when he turned his heart towards worship. One of my favorite worship songs is by the Austin Stone, a song called Jesus is Better, which declares in all my sorrows, Jesus is is better. In every victory, Jesus is better. It says more than any comfort, Jesus is better. More than all riches, Jesus is better. And all throughout the refrain is make my heart believe. Why sing that repeatedly? If not because we we struggle with actually believing that Jesus is better than all riches, than all comfort, than our suffering, than our sorrows. Our song eternal, Jesus is better. Make my heart believe. That's the cry of contentment. That's the cry of worship. And it's the reason we need worship to fight covetousness and to pursue contentment. Secondly is gratitude. Covetousness is wanting something so bad that we lose our contentment in Christ. It's noticing and desiring what others have to the degree that we stop being thankful for all that God has given us. And so if we're to fight covetousness, we must respond with gratitude. Now, I've had moments, I don't know if you've had those moments, maybe it's being with a special group of people. I've had those moments where I'm here in my church family worshiping together where just gratitude wells up in my soul. And I think, man, God is good. Like I don't deserve any of this. But more often than not, I believe that gratitude is something we have to fight for. It's a discipline that we need. In fact, I know it's a discipline because 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18 says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God for you. I've never stumbled into giving thanks. I even sometimes have to work hard to give thanks on Thanksgiving. It's a discipline that we have to pursue. One church father, John Chrysostom, said, Let us be thankful not only for our own blessings, but also for those of others. In this way, we will destroy not only envy, but we will rivet our hearts to charity and make it more genuine, since it will not even be possible for us to go on envying those on behalf for whom we give thanks to the Lord. He says, give thanks to God for what you have and give thanks to God for what your neighbor has, because if you're thanking God for what they have, you can't go on envying them. Just like if you're praying for someone, you can't go on in conflict without some, um, some massive gap <laughs> in the, uh, con- you know, some, something that, that compels you to address the conflict. It, it compels us to address our envy when we're thanking God for others and what they have. We have to fight covetousness with gratitude. Find a way in your daily rhythm to give thanks to God, not just for the food that you eat, but for all that he's done for you, all that he's entrusted to you. That old car that doesn't have the rearview mirror and the back parts coming off and has a bent tire that needs brakes replaced, you step back and you think, man, how good are you, God, that you gave me a friend who helped me replace the brakes when I didn't know how to do it? How good are you, God, that you gave me uh, some gaff tape to put on the back of that car to ensure that it still opens up when I need it? How good are you, God, to to provide for me as a child? I I don't even sometimes know what to ask, and you provide in ways that I I, I don't even know that I should be asking you. That gratitude fills our hearts, that we see God's 
God's gracious provision in our daily life, sometimes through the encouragement of a friend, sometimes through reminding that the things that we have are, are a gift from God, but in every way that we intentionally make time for gratitude. And finally, generosity. First Timothy 6, we talked earlier about how it spoke to the issue of contentment. Uh, it says, As for the rich in the present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good and be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so they may take hold of that which is truly life. Paul says it to the rich here in 1 Timothy, but Jesus said it to every believer in the Gospels when he said, don't go on heaping up more and more thinking, I just need to get a little bit more, then I'll be secure in the end. He said, when the end comes, you can't keep what's in the barns. When the end comes, you can't keep what's in the saving account. When the end comes, you will either be poor before God or you will be rich in him. Notice I didn't say that you can't have possessions. I'm saying your heart will either be poor before him because you've not stored up riches in him through generosity, through gratitude, through worship, or it'll be rich in those things. So what are you preparing for in the future? Acts 20, Paul talked to the Ephesians elders. He says, I commend you to God's grace, which is able to build you up. He says, I didn't cover, covet anyone's silver or gold, but instead when I came among you, I worked to meet my necessities and those who are with me. In all things I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help remember the weak and the poor and remember Jesus' words that it's more blessed to give than to receive. You see, fighting the belief that we don't have enough is actually best done by giving what we do have. That generosity reminds us that Jesus is enough and that God has already and graciously provided us everything we do have. So as we give, we give in response to what he's given us. We fight covetousness by worship, by gratitude and generosity. As we come to the end of the Ten Commandments, we're reminded uh, of these ten words that are to guide us as God's people. They come to us from a God who we can trust. The God who spoke all these words said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, who brought you out of the place of slavery. Do not have other gods beside me. Do not make an idol for yourself. Do not go on <clears throat> uh, misusing the name of the Lord. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Honor your father and mother. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony against your neighbor or covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. Verse 18 said, All the people witnessed the thunder and the lightning, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain surrounded by smoke. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. See, when the law was given, the people trembled and stood at a distance because it revealed God's holy and just and good character. But today, as we hear the law, we may tremble because it also exposes our sin, our failure to obey God, our failure to uh, respond to his, uh, his commands. But the reason we don't have to go on trembling is because the law points us to Jesus. Remember, Jesus said, I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. It's only in Christ that we find forgiveness of our sins, but also the power to walk in obedience to God's commands. These 10 words reveal God to us, expose our sin to ourselves, but also point us to Jesus. So as we end this series, I want our eyes to be fixed on him and to remember who he is and what he's done for us. Join me in praying.